Welcome to From the Medium, a daily report from the front line of the pro-life movement, discussing two worldviews that are driving our culture in opposite directions. From the Median asks, which side of the road are you on? What direction do you want our culture to go? Tune in as we plan the route that takes us back to the culture of life. And now your host, Molly Smith. Welcome back. I am Molly Smith, your host. I want to remind you all that our program is available for download. You can do so by going to our website from themedian.org. Listeners, as always, wonderful to have you with us. Thank you so much for joining us. Got another wonderful new guest joining us right now. But before we get there, I want to tell you a little bit about him. Our guest is Neil Shenby. He is the the co-author of, of an incredibly interesting book called Critical Dilemma, The Rise of Critical Theory and Social Justice Ideology, Implications for the Church and Society. I am fascinated that he would have written this book, he and his co-author, because we all know that there is something really drastically wrong with this whole idea of critical theory and, and social justice. But we, you know, to, to tie it into the reasons why it is actually upsetting the, the goodness of Christianity and the Christian world. This is, this is an amazing book to have at our disposal. So, but before further ado, I'm going to say, Neil, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Molly. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. And you know, you are a little bit about you. You are, you have an AB in chemistry from Princeton University and a PhD in theoretical chemistry from UC Berkeley. I said to you before you came on there, you've got a whole bunch of other things behind your name. I couldn't even start pronouncing some of the degrees you've got. So, but that's fine because you, you, you are now what I love. You're a homeschooler. You're also the author of Why Believe, a reasoned approach to Christianity. And you're widely recognized for writing on critical theory, which can be found in journals like Econ, the Journal for Christian Legal Thought. You have four children. You're married with four children. And as I said, when I went through reading your bio and looking a little bit more about you, I have two children that actually three three of my five kids have done homeschooling with their children. So I was like, oh my goodness, I got lots in common with you. I may not be as smart as you, but I do have something in common with you. So this is wonderful. Neil, why did you decide to write this book? Good question. So I was always very interested in apologetics. For I became a Christian in graduate school at UC Berkeley, and I was trying to share the gospel with my coworkers who are often atheists or agnostic. So I wrote a book for them. Why I believe is a, a book that helps people in uh, to understand the Christian faith, to understand why it's true and how we have good evidence to believe it's true, and then to call them to just believe the gospel. So that's what I did for uh, 15 years after becoming a Christian. But then around 2015, 2016 or so, I began to notice a shift in our culture, and I couldn't really figure out what it was. So I was very apolitical. I still am pretty apolitical. I, I don't get into the politics very much. But I was beginning to notice people's theology was changing, uh, both inside and outside the church. People weren't asking questions like, is Christianity true? Instead, they were asking questions like, does Christianity support the oppressed? Does it work for social justice? And they didn't really even care whether it was true. And so it was confusing to me. And around that time, I met my collaborator and co-author, Dr. Pat Sawyer, who was doing a PhD in education and cultural studies. He was doing critical theory professionally. Hmm. And we connected and he began to explain his research. And it suddenly clicked that I was seeing these ideas in the culture and even in the church. And so that's why we began collaborating and ended up writing this book together. Wow, wow. You know, you say, uh, one of the things you say is, is if we ignore the Bible in pursuit of justice, we'll lose both Christianity and justice in the process. Why do you think that the, uh, that the ideas at the heart of this whole woke movement are so dangerous? 
Or is people this don't why? often see yeah. that. Yeah, well, people don't see that often. So people that are quote-unquote woke, who've imbibed these ideas drawn from critical theory, uh, they often use words like justice and oppression. And we, we hear those words, and we say, oh, the Bible uses those words too, so they must be saying the same thing. We can also, as Christians, and we should as Christians, affirm that God commands us to seek justice. The problem is that critical theory has defined these words differently than the Bible does, even than the dictionary does. So when they talk about pursuing justice, well, they will include things like reproductive justice, meaning abortion, Mm -hmm. as a component of social justice. So obviously Christians can't get behind that. And there are a lot of other areas in which uh, these definitions, these words have been changed. So if you embrace them, even unknowingly, they will gradually erode your basic Christian commitments. So therefore, main ideas within contemporary critical theory that uh, organize the entire way of looking at reality. And I can go through them and explain why each of them undermines basic Christian doctrine. Wow, is this? And this is all in your book, of course. You, 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 you're, you're going to be, you know, you, you, you lay it all out. You also write that the real social justice, that real social injustice exists. Real so- social injustice exists. What would, how would you define biblical justice? Because you've got those two things, sort of. Uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, opposing each other almost, the injustice and then the, the biblical justice. So I think a, a, a definition of justice that it works biblically, that goes back, I think, all the way to Plato and Augustine and Aquinas both used it, was that justice is rendering unto other people what they are due, including God. God himself is due certain things, primarily our wholehearted allegiance. We owe God everything. So mm-hmm. he should be the number one most important person in our lives. Uh, so that's justice, a matter of, ju- of rendering to God what he was owed is, was his, our worship. But also there's a matter of justice between individual people. So what do I owe my neighbor? Jesus says the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. So in a sense, justice is a very biblical idea, but it's been redefined within this discipline to refer not to giving unto people what they're due, whether it's God or, or your, your fellow man. It's redefined to mean dismantling systems of oppression. Where oppression refers to anything, any time that a, a, a dominant group, whether it's whites or men or heterosexuals, when they impose their values on culture, that's seen as oppression. And justice is seen as overturning those oppressive systems. Well, that's, that's very different in the way that Christianity conceives justice. First of all, there's no God in the picture. Mm-hmm. And second of all, the idea that all value systems that are imposed on you are oppressive that's not true. I mean, things like the gender binary. God created male and female, and he, he these are good things. And we should embrace them as part of our human nature. That's not oppressive. That's that's actually true. That's God's reality. And we should embrace that narrative that says, hey, gender binary exists, and it's good. Whereas critical theory in the form of queer theory we want to undermine that gender binary and say it's just a human social construct. It's oppressive. We should get rid of it. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's so true. I mean, the, the actual, you know, there is so much freedom in what God has created for us. And when we recognize that, we really get that freedom. And it's when we, we turn and, 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 and flip it that exactly that, you know, what I said, that it's that we, we, we look for those. There is injustice in some of these things right now. You, you, you talk about, and this, I love this one. You, you say that there's del, you, uh, you know, anyone that delving into, into academic literature will find themselves swimming in an ocean of buzzwords words. What are some of these and why do they, why do semantics matter? My goodness, honestly, Neil, so many buzzwords. I I can't keep up with the buzzwords, but you know, 
Why does it matter that we use these? Well, we shouldn't, I I would say we shouldn't use them. We should understand them because oftentimes people will spit out these words like intersectionality or white privilege, white fragility. They'll use these terms, the gender binary heteronormativity. They'll use them because they sound hip and cool and they'll try to contextualize the gospel to young people today. But, but I say, wait a minute. Those words actually have a meaning. They have a history. And when you use words like intersectionality, do you know what you're actually referring to? So take that term, for example. It was coined in 1989 by Kimberly Crenshaw. It's a critical race theorist. And it refers to the ways that in which racism, sexism, classism, and heterosexism are all interlocking oppressions in her, in her mind. So she goes on to write things like, you know, you can't dismantle just racism alone. You also have to dismantle heterosexism, meaning the idea that heterosexism is God's heterosexuality is God's standard for humanity. It's the right way to live. You have to get rid of all of that. So people will say things like intersectionality and think they just, I don't know what they think they're saying, but it's crucial for us to understand what these terms actually mean and where they're coming from. So our book spends a lot of time citing the literature, explaining it in everyday terms, but also letting the critical theorists speak for themselves. We, we quote a lot of theorists just saying in you know, paragraphs explaining their theories because we don't want you to rely on our interpretation of their statements we want them to speak in their own language and you can see laid bare the foundations of their worldview i i would i would suggest even that if you were to ask particularly some of the younger people that are you know that are using these terms they have no clue what they even mean it, as you said it sounds hip it sounds cool you know and, and i'm using work terminology and uh, and away we go i mean that whole thing of you know social justice and what well, the uh, you know um equality thing uh, we had it happening in our schools here with the with the three little three children standing on 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 blocks you know that was the the famous one that was going around when we were doing critical crit- critical race theory and a lot of the, we, we actually challenged some of the people that were, were pushing this about, um, you know, uh, equality. And they really did not know what on earth it meant, but they, but it was, had been made woke and, you know, hip. And, and so everybody was jumping on the band, including some of the teachers and, you know, so it was just everywhere it was going. So it's dangerous. I, I totally agree with you. It's actually dangerous to, to, to be, to use those semantics like that in, in a way that can be very, very destructive to, to society. Why is it important for us to focus on the ideas rather than the labels. I mean, that's what we're talking about right now are the labels. Why is it so dangerous that, that, you know, we, 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 it's so important for us to focus on those ideas behind those things. Right. Because labels can change. And so you see this in the literature, actually, a lot of these ideas come in different packages with different names on them. So a few years ago, if you remember, people were worried about cultural Marxism. And then everyone said, well, we're not doing cultural Marxism. We're doing critical race theory. Then, okay, well, then you said, well, critical race theory is bad. Well, we're not doing critical race theory. We're doing critical pedagogy now. But so the, the, the labels <laughs> just change. We're doing, there's a, a book by Barbara Applebaum called Being White, Being Good. And she goes through all this litany of terms that she uses. It's critical pedagogy. It's critical whiteness pedagogy. It's critical whiteness advocacy. It's, it just goes on and on and on. And the province is a moving target. So you just, if you just firebomb some term, well, next year there'll be a new term. Mm-hmm. So the, the key is recognizing the ideas that are there. The, the ideas are poisonous. So if we can spot them, we say, hey, I don't care what you call this. This idea is not true, and it will harm society and your soul if you embrace it. So that's why we really focus on, yeah, you, we explain the terms. We explain words like equity, intersectionality, white mm-hmm. fragility, white privilege. But we also say, hey, 
forget the labels you use. The ideas at the heart of these labels, the ideas the labels are expressing, they're just wrong. And here's why they're wrong. Here's why from a biblical perspective and also just from a perspective of reason and evidence and objectivity, these ideas are not reflective of reality. And we have to, we, both Christians and non-Christians can say, hey, these aren't, these aren't true. <laughs> these aren't good and beautiful. We should reject them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What are, the, are, are some of the most, the most important and notable of the 15 tenets of critical race theory? You, 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 you lay out the 15 uh, tenets of, the, of critical race theory. What are they? So we group them under four big categories because you can kind of combine them. This is very common in the literature. Uh, one is the idea that racism is a normal, permanent, and pervasive, meaning racism is everywhere. It's and you can't see it. it's baked in society. It's systemic. Now people, you hear that that's repeated all the time in the literature. People hear that statement that racism is everywhere. It's ubiquitous. It's permanent. It's pervasive. They say, wait a minute, wait a minute, that doesn't make much sense. I, I go to the grocery store, I see people that are Hispanic and black and white and Asian, just all hanging it out and doing their shopping. I don't see this burning people burning crosses and wearing white hoods. But the second, the second idea then is what, yeah, you don't see that because racism is subtle. It's adapted. It's changed. It used to be that racism was expressed with overt bigotry, but now racism is covert and it's expressed through ideas like colorblindness and meritocracy and equality. All of those things are disguises that conceal racist motives and racist policy. That's the second big idea. The third big idea is uh, intersectionality, the idea that racism is one of many oppressions, including sexism and heterosexism. Uh, and so, so that has to all be dismantled together. You can't just dismantle only racism. You have to dismantle sexism, classism, heterosexism, and all these other nomina. And the final idea is lived experience that you can, you can only truly understand racism via your lived experience of racism. So that's why people of color, whether they're black or Hispanic or Asian, they have a unique insight to provide into racism that whites just can't see it. It's invisible to whites. Mm-hmm. So those four big ideas are at the heart of critical race theory, and you can find them pretty much everywhere in the literature. You say, also say that the, the racial progress that has been made in the last 50 uh, de- uh, years, you write that radical uh, racial progress has been made. Why does critical race theory pro- proponents suggest that racism is endemic in our culture? Uh, you've just sort of gone through that they'll keep going back to that idea that, oh, well, you can't do it because it's endemic. You can't because, you know, you have to change. The- but, and yet we have made huge strides from that perspective. Right. So they reject the sort of civil rights movement framing of racism. So civil rights, they'll say that civil rights movement framed racism primarily in terms of individual personal racial prejudice, whereas critical race theory sees racism more in terms of systems and structures that, well, then what do you mean systems and structures? Well, any system or structure which produces racial disparities is de facto a manifestation of systemic racism. They don't ask whether you have hatred in your heart. They don't ask whether the laws are unfair. They say if a law produces racial disparities, meaning it it, it, uh, seems to advantage whites over blacks or Hispanics or other people of color, well, that means the law is racist, even if the intention was totally good and benign. Mm -hmm. So that's why they can see racism everywhere. And actually, they even go farther and say that even laws which are explicitly colorblind, which make no reference to race at all, which were passed in order with no racist motivations – they can still be forms of systemic racism if they simply produce or reproduce racial 
inequalities. You know, even as you're talking, I, I hear these arguments. I've heard them. I've, you know, talked to, to people about them. And it, it almost makes my blood boil because no matter which way you turn, Neil, they, they, they keep coming back at you with things that are just absolute nonsense. How do we get around that? It's just like good grief. I mean, yeah. One way I think, and we do this in the book, we have a whole chapter talking about the positive insights of these critical social theories. Why do they even work at all? And the answer is, well, they get at some elements of truth. For example, critical race theory says race is a social construct. And especially as Christians, we should say amen to that. Mm-hmm. There's one race, the human race. So you hear, you know, they get that right. Another thing they get right is that, you know, colorblind policies can in principle conceal racist motives. So there's famous court cases where a company would pass an ostensibly colorblind policy. It didn't make reference to race, but it was intended to disenfranchise blacks. That was the whole point. Yeah. And the Supreme Court said, wait a minute, you can't, we see through your guys, you're this ruse. You're clearly trying to discriminate against blacks. You can't do that. Even if the, the policy is officially on its surface colorblind. So that can happen. But what I would say and what people should say is that just because it can happen doesn't mean it's always happening. That's right. That's right. Of course, you can hide racism but beneath ostensibly colorblind policies. doesn't mean that every colorblind policy, that colorblindness itself is racist. That's a different claim. So mm-hmm. we just want people to point to actual evidence that something, say, is racist. And I think that a lot of it in the, in the 13th chapter, the second to last chapter, or the third to last chapter, we show how to reach people and how to affirm that, you know, you, you can and should, as a Christian, be opposed to racism and sexism and injustice. That's, that's absolutely amen to that. But we want to show people a better way to do those things. Those are worthy goals, but those goals cannot be and should not be achieved through these very wrong and unbiblical means mm-hmm. via critical social theories. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, I'm going to jump a bit here now and go down to the queer theory. You you have a whole chapter on that. What, what does this have to do with gender studies and feminism? Right. So queer theory is uh, one of many critical social theories, like critical race theory, like critical pedagogy. These are all sort of cousins in terms of social theories. But it focuses on gender and sexuality in particular. And it looks at, just like critical race theory, looks at how race is used to divide people into oppressor groups and oppressed groups along lines of race. Well, queer theory looks at how uh, gender is used to divide people into oppressors who are men and uh, the oppressed are women. And also uh, how it's used to simply codify the gender binary. Gender binary itself is oppressive. There aren't just two genders. They would say there, there maybe could be dozens or hundreds of genders. And because those, the, the idea that gender is just binary is itself an oppressive social construct that was created to perpetuate the power of cisgendered people and men and the patriarchy. So it's, uh, again, it's, it's, it's expression of critical theory along the axis of gender and sexuality. I mean, even as you're saying that, Neil, I'm going, oh my goodness, you know, to have we, are we really living down the, the rabbit hole here? I mean, you know, <laughs> it's just a good grief. This is unbelievable, but it's, but it's very serious and can be very dangerous. I mean, you, 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 um, you actually talk about that, you know, that, that there are four core ideas promoted by queer theory. Why, why should we com- be concerned about them? Well, because they're everywhere. And we, we document not just how academics have stated these ideas very clearly in the literature, but then we show how in culture it's penetrated into education, into media, social media, entertainment, movies, television, uh, politics. It's, it's everywhere, really. Now, oftentimes, we point this point several times in the book, 
people don't know where their ideas are coming from. They'll repeat these talking points like, well, you know, th there's more than two genders or gender is a social construct. They'll say those things. You ask them, well, where do you hear that? They're not going to say, oh, I read Judith Butler. I and mean, we quote Judith Butler. She's a very famous queer theorist. But they'll simply say, well, I heard it somewhere. Where do you hear it? I don't know, social media, Twitter, or I don't know, I saw it in the news. So yeah. They don't. Yeah. So the ideas have consequences, and now the ideas of critical theory, race theory and queer theory, they're just in the water. You, you, you absorb them on a daily basis from, from magazines, from movies, from billboards, yeah. from advertisements. So we really have to understand, one, what they, these ideas really are saying, and then two, as Christians, why they're antithetical to what the Bible teaches. Absolutely. You've got so many parts of this book that and I'd love to be, to go into it all, but we're going to be out of time. But I do want to get to a couple of different things that I really would like for you to answer, to talk about. Um, you you issue a warning to evangelicals who embrace who, who embrace egalitarian. Uh, you, you're going to have to say that worked for me. Egalitarian. E e egalitarian. Yeah. I, I can say it when I just, somebody talks to me, but when I have to read it off a page, it's always like, Oh, which one, which syllable comes first? <laughs> so, all right. So, so why is that? Why do you give that warning? To so egalitarianism is uh, the do a doctrine that says that men and women, uh, they are equal, but in every way, in every function too. So there, there are no specific roles for men or women, either in the home or in the church that, you know, women can be pastors, women can be, women can, um, women can, can lead the home with men. There, there's not, there's no sense in which the, the husband is the head of the family. And it has ultimate responsibility for that. That's not true. They're completely interchangeable in terms of roles, men and women. And what we say in the book is that there are Christians who are egalitarian, meaning they, they deny that there are specific gender roles for men and women, but they still, they believe that that, uh, that belief can be, can be squared with what the Bible teaches. And, uh, they look at the text and they say, well, I think this, you know, first Timothy or Titus, these books don't limit, say, the office of pastor to women. They might say that. Now, that's, that's a debate within evangelicalism, and we, we disagree. We are, Pat and I are both complementarians. We believe that men are given uh, leadership roles in the church and in the family. Um, but the but point is, you can have that debate over what the Bible teaches. That, that's one thing. But what's happening today, we're seeing this within evangelicalism, is that egalitarians are no longer saying, well, here's how I interpret this verse or this chapter or this book. They're not saying that. They're now interpreting everything through the lens of power dynamics huh. and feminist theology. So they're not even trying to interpret what the, the Bible says. They're now interpreting everything through this feminist lens. It, it, intentionally, I mean, explicitly, they'll say, we're going to embrace this feminist way to read the Bible. We're not going to bother reading the text and understand what, the, what Paul was saying. That's very dangerous because if you just say, I'm not even, I'm not even bother to interpret the Bible. I'm just going to impose my modern views on the Bible interpret everything in terms of power and privilege and oppression, you're not just going to become egalitarian. You're all going to, you're going to have to also embrace transgender and LGBTQ theology and the dominant is just going to fall because you're, you're, you're approaching the Bible in the wrong way. Mm -hmm. So we offer this caution to people that we, we view as our brothers and sisters in Christ that you can't, do not go down this, this trail. Don't take this path. If you want to say the Bible teaches this, that's one thing. If you want to totally throw the Bible out and you know, go around it, 
that's something totally different. We got to warn you that's happening in the church. Yes, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. And I think we've known that. I've, I've, I've been fighting it for since 2000. I, the first time I really, really saw it was about in 2008 when we, we when we discovered it happening right within, deep within the church. And it was like, mm. oh my goodness gracious me, look what's happening. You know, so absolutely. The book, of course, is called Critical Dilemma. I am talking to Neil Shinvi uh, and his co-author is Pat Sawyer. You can get the book, I'm sure, through Amazon. I'm sure there's other places you can get it. Uh, Neil, where, where else can we get it? Um, so on ChristianBook.com, Another it's actually one. Like yep. 37% Christian off. So it's, yeah. And if you, if you pre-order it now and you go to our website, CriticalDilemma.com, you can get a free discussion guide that's like 5,000 words, 30 pages of just ways to you know, lead a book club, a, a church Bible study, Wonderful. a high school class. It's just free. You can get it for free. So, so we'll, put, well, all of that information will be on the website. So do, just go to fromthemedian.org and, and type in Neil's name. And it's, again, Shenvi, S-H-E-N-V-I. Neil, thank you so much. Keep writing. Keep doing this. We need you. Absolutely. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Molly. Okay, take care. God bless you lots. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you all for joining me this evening. As I say good night and God bless each and every one of you, I'd like to close with the words of the Holocaust survivor Elie Wiesel. There may be times when we are powerless to prevent injustice, but there must never be a time when we fail to protest. From the Median is listener supported. Visit our website, fromthemedian.org, for further information or to make a donation to continue to make this radio program possible. Email us, radionews at fromthemedian.org or call 440-668-4049. Through our fromthemedian.org website, you can download this or previous programs for your listening pleasure or sign up to receive our weekly preview of upcoming guest interviews. Tune in every weeknight at the same time to listen to another great interview on From the Median as we plan the route that takes us back to the culture of life. This program has been sponsored by Cleveland Right to Life and is responsible for its content.